We are in the book of Revelation. This will be our second week. I gave a brief introduction last week, but I decided I wanted to go back and just fill in a few more little details before we proceed on with this book. So I'm going to kind of reintroduce the book of Revelation. Some of it might be repeat. Others will be new tidbits of information that I did not share last week. So again, of course, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John the Apostle. John is the vessel through whom Jesus gave the revelation, but it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The title is derived from the first word of the text written in Koine Greek, apocalypsis, meaning unveiling or revelation. The book spans three literary genres, epistolary, as in an epistle, epistolary, apocalyptic, and prophetic. Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy with an epistolary introduction addressed to the seven churches in the Roman province of Anatolia, Asia Minor, or as we know it today, Turkey. And of course, apocalypse means the revealing of divine mysteries. We met, obviously, the, uh, the author is John the Apostle. It's believed he was the youngest of the apostles and that he outlived all the others. He's said to have lived to an old age, dying at Ephesus, sometime after A.D. 98. Early tradition says that John was banished to Patmos by the Roman authorities. Uh, and this tradition is credible because banishment was a common punishment used during the imperial period for a number of offenses. Among such offenses were the practices of magic and astrology. Prophecy was viewed by the Romans as belonging in the same category, whether pagan, Jewish, or Christian. Prophecy with political implications, like that expressed by John in the book of Revelation, would have been perceived as a threat to Roman political power and order. Uh, three of the islands in the Sporides were places where political offenders were banished. Now, the Sporides, the southern Sporides, also known as the Dodecanese Islands, off the coast of Turkey. Patmos is located just off the southern coast of Turkey. So John was banished to the island of Patmos after being plunged into boiling oil in Rome and coming out unscathed. This is the, uh, what tradition tells us. They tried to boil him in oil, but he wouldn't boil. And uh, the story also says that all the people in the audience of the Colosseum were converted to Christianity as the result of witnessing this miracle. So the book of Revelation, it's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ because in it we are introduced to the glorified Christ in all of his heavenly splendor. We're also made privy to the specifics of end times events leading up to his spectacular triumphant return. Now we're going to pick it up today in verse 6. We left off last week in verse 5, but I'm going to go back and read beginning in verse 4 just to get us up to speed and into the context of where we are this morning. Beginning in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1, John to the seven churches which are in Asia or Anatolia or Turkey. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen." Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this amazing, wonderful, incredible, awesome book of Revelation, uh, the final book of the Bible, and it reveals to us the events leading up to the beginning of eternity, the end of time as we know it, the end of the age of man and the beginning of the age of the Messiah. So we ask you to bless this time of study in your word this morning. May we learn and grow and get closer to you as we study this passage together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll pick it up in verse 6. Jesus has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Kings and priests. Now this is a description in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel, Exodus 19.6, and for the church in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.9. I'll read those two verses. Exodus 19.6, you shall be to me a kingdom, this is speaking to Israel, of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. We know that, unfortunately, Israel failed. They fell away and ultimately rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so the fulfillment now comes through the New Testament church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile. We're all one in Christ now. We are grafted in as Gentiles into the olive tree of Israel. 1 Peter 2.9, but you believers, as Peter writes to believers here, you believers are a chosen generation. And so every generation of believers from the beginning of the, of the New Testament church in the book of Acts chapter 2, we're all part of that chosen generation. It, it's not a chronological generation. It's a spiritual generation. Every generation of believers is chosen by God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so even though we may live in different nations all over the globe, in Christ, all believers, regardless of their language, their ethnicity, their color, their social or economic status, we are all part of that holy nation. Our citizenship is in heaven. And uh, he goes on, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his Marvelous light. Quite an amazing description of the church, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, special people. And why are we made all these things in Christ that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? So uh, we ask different believers, what, uh, what do you think the most important purpose for a Christian here on earth is, probably most would say, well, to preach the gospel, to evangelize, to spread the word, and that certainly is a high priority, and that was the great commission that Jesus gave to the apostles in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is the great commission, we call it. But I believe from this scripture and other passages of scripture that our number one purpose here is to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
to praise God, to honor God, to worship him here on this earth. I know many years ago I was part of a ministry up in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. There was a small downtown area there in Cheyenne. I'm sure it's bigger today. This is going back over 30 years now. But there were these, there were these two big bars, public hangouts where everybody would they'd be go back and forth the street all night on a Friday night, Saturday night, drinking, going from one bar to the next. And uh, it was a pretty, kind of like downtown central on, and here in Albuquerque, but we used to go out and stand on the corner there on a Friday night or a Saturday night, maybe 10, 15, 20 of us, and just sing praise and worship songs, take an acoustic guitar. And we were praying. The one place had a particularly bad reputation, and we were praying, God, please shut this place down. And we'd go out and worship every weekend, and sure enough, before too long, that place closed down. So uh, there's a lot to be said for publicly praising, honoring God. We've gone at various times down to the gazebo in Old Town, Albuquerque. We've gone to, it's been quite a few years now, but we've gone and done praise and worship music at the Civic Plaza. And this is something that goes back into the 70s when I was with a contemporary Christian music group. We used to go to malls, public schools, high schools, colleges, wherever we could go, and just sing songs about Jesus. It's, it's a very powerful and dynamic way of reaching people. Anyway, kings and priests, now as we are grafted in and we've become part of Israel, spiritual Israel, we are all called to be kings and priests forever to his God and Father. Who's God and Father? Jesus, the Father of Jesus Christ, the first person of the Trinity. As kings and priests, we are and will be in the service of the King who is over all kings and the Father of all. And this is something to think about as we go through life. I'm not sure how many of us on a daily basis give much thought to the fact that we are kings and priests, even now. You see, in Christ, God already sees us as the fulfillment of everything that he proclaims we are and will be. In other words, even though we dwell in mortal bodies that are subject to physical death, in God's eyes, we are already eternal. We've already been given eternal life in Christ. Physical death is just a transition. It's just casting off one vehicle and taking on a new eternal vehicle. And so in the same way, even though uh, very few, if any of us involved in this broadcast today are priests, I guess I'm a pastor, it's kind of like a priest, but we teach and believe at Calvary Chapel in the priesthood of the believer that every believer is a priest. We all are ministers, we are all representatives of Jesus Christ, but we're also kings serving under the king of kings. But how often do we think of ourselves that way? And I'm not talking about some kind of a haughty, arrogant way. You see some of these uh, certain types of preachers who will put on kind of a pompous, arrogant show for us about how great they are. How, we're the king's kids. But it should be approached in a very humble way. Again, he's the king of kings. We are kings and priests under Christ. Kinglings. <laughs> under kings, but it does give us a sense of our position that we are a chosen generation, a special people, and in a very humble 
and uh, self-reflective way we should be in mind of, mindful of that because it should and would affect our conduct here on earth the way we behave. Certainly people expect a higher level of behavior from someone with those kind of positions. A king, a priest, chosen generation, uh, special people. It should impact the way we reflect our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on a daily basis. Ephesians 4.4 There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We just saw how Jesus has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. There's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And we tend to forget this, I think, sometimes as well. But it really is all about him, all about God. It's not about us. Although this world, the philosophies of men, the philosophies of this world would teach you otherwise. They would teach you it's all about you. Can't love anybody else till you learn to love yourself. No, that's not the problem. Self-love comes naturally to human beings. What does not come naturally is self-sacrifice. Selflessness instead of selfishness. That's how many people approach God, that he is there for their benefit. And there's, there's an element of truth in that, of course, because he did love the world so much. John 3.16, that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But we read already that the reason God has made us all these things is that we may proclaim the praises of him. One God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all, it's all about him. If we want to live a life that's well-pleasing to God, a life that is fulfilling, then we will live a life where he is the focus, honoring him, glorifying him, recognizing that all glory and dominion and power belong to him forever and ever as his humble servants. Let's move on to verse 7, Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This gets me very excited. When I hear those words, behold, he is coming, I don't know about you, but I get really excited. And I think many of us, as we're watching all these world events unfolding before our very eyes, the earthquakes, the, the pandemics, the uh, pestilence, all the things that are happening in our world today, the artificial intelligence, the uh, robotics, the gene editing, gene splicing, the CRISPR technology, things are accelerating at such a rapid rate. It's like the Tower of Babel. I've long believed that the time that we're now living in is a return to the power of Babel when Man spoke one common language. That language today is the language of technology. It's the language of the internet. The Tower of Babel, Nimrod sought to build a tower to reach up into the heavens. He was trying to achieve godhood. And many believe, in fact, that he did make contact with the watchers, uh, the fallen angels, and God stepped in and said, There's, this is enough. And he confounded them, he dispersed them, spread them about, and divided them into many different languages to 
reduce their power and their ability to try to achieve godhood. We're at the Tower of Babel once again. Uh, they did achieve part of their goal. They did build a certain portion of that tower, and then God stepped in and said, that's enough. Well, that's what's happening again today. The Tower of Babel is being rebuilt through information, technology, all these things that we're seeing happening, cloning, uh, things that even 50 years ago most people would never even have dreamed of, perhaps maybe in a science fiction movie, Star Trek or something like that. Now it's becoming more and more of a reality every day, and all these things seem to be pointing to the soon return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one world government, all the additional control being seized upon by governments all over the world in the time of this pandemic. One has to wonder how easily this control will be relinquished as the pandemic begins to taper off. When will these various governments allow people to again have the personal freedoms they enjoyed prior to the pandemic? Very interesting. He is coming with the clouds. Notice it doesn't say in the clouds, with the clouds. So the clouds are individuals. Jude 1.14, we studied this not long ago. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. These clouds would be the saints who were dwelling there in heaven with him at the time of the second coming. This is not the rapture. We'll talk more about that in a moment. This is the second coming of Christ. And I believe that these clouds will be made up not only of believers, but also angelic hosts, the hosts of heaven, the armies of heaven, both immortal human beings and immortal angelic beings. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Here the writer of Hebrews is talking about a cloud of witnesses in heaven, believers that are already in heaven observing what's happening here on earth. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. He's coming with the clouds. Do you see the connection? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so this scripture seems to indicate that those believers that are already in heaven are, a, are able to observe the things that are happening here on earth. So sadly, oftentimes, we're not even being mindful of the fact that God is watching us. I think that's an old Bette Midler song. God is watching us. That's a cool song, actually, from a distance. He's up in heaven, but he's also in our hearts. But that cloud of witnesses would include the angelic beings, the believers there in heaven with the Father. And if we were more mindful of this on a daily basis, it might also affect the way we act, the things we say, the things we do. Remembering now, even though we're not thinking of them, they're watching us. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. So this immediately tells us this is not the rapture. Because the rapture of the church, the catching away of the saints is a secretive event. Remember, Jesus said it would be like a thief in the night. And yet, here, every eye will see him. This is the second coming where he comes to rule and to reign. 
The seven-year tribulation period, which we'll be getting into here in the near future in the book of Revelation, we will be with Christ in heaven. We will become part of that great cloud of witnesses watching from, I like to say, from the balcony. And then when he comes back with us, so let's put it this way. Here's, here's the way you can separate the two. At the rapture of the church, which takes place at the beginning of the tribulation, Christ comes for his church. At the end of the tribulation, he will come with his church. He comes for us. We're caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air. At the end of the tribulation, we come back as part of the clouds of heaven. We come back with him to conquer, to defeat the armies of this earth, the armies of the Antichrist, the wicked rulers that will be ruling during this final period of the tribulation, and then to establish his 1,000-year reign upon the earth, the millennial kingdom of Christ. And next week, I'm going to go over some of the various beliefs and interpretations regarding amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, pre-mid, post-tribulation, rapture, all those things we'll talk about next week as an introduction to the next section here in Revelation chapter 1. But let's move on. Every eye will see him, Romans 14, 11. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And so here's one of the sad truths of what's coming soon to this planet is that right now those who embrace Christ, this is not a sad truth, this is a good truth, we will become part of that royal priesthood, that chosen generation, those priests and kings. But those who reject him will not. They will spend eternity separated from God in a place commonly known as hell. But before they are sent there, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So even those who refuse in this life to bow the knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will be forced to do so before you are forever cast from his presence. So since you're going to have to do it anyway, why not do it now and become part of his forever family? Receive the precious gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ because even if you don't, one day you will bow your knee to him and you will confess him as Lord. So I recommend you do it now while it can do you some good, while you can benefit from it. Notice this. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. The ones who crucified Christ will see him for who he really is. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Even those who pierced him. And then all of the people of the earth will mourn, it tells us here in Revelation 1, 7. Those who know and love him will cry tears of joy at his appearing. Those who rejected him will mourn at their loss of eternal salvation. Even so, amen. So be it, John says. Bring it on. And I often pray that in my evening prayers. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Come soon. 
Take us home to be with you. For those who have acknowledged Jesus as Lord and Savior and have been born again by the Spirit of God, the rapid onslaught, we talked about this last week, when it happens quickly. That doesn't mean it was going to happen within a few years of the time that it was written at the end of the first century. What it does mean is that when these events begin to unfold, it will happen very quickly as within a seven-year period. The rapid onslaught of these cataclysmic events will be exciting for us as believers. And so even now, amen, let it, let it be so. We look upon what's happening in the world. Yes, it's tragic. We certainly don't rejoice in the loss of life, loss of health, income, all the bad things that are happening to people right now. But we do rejoice that all the signs indicate Jesus is coming soon. But those who don't know him, what we're about to get into here in the book of Revelation will be their worst nightmare, the most gruesome horror flick, the scariest sci-fi action film will soon look like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood compared to what's coming soon to a planet near you. Again, you do have the opportunity, even today as you're watching this broadcast, to give your life to Christ, to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to confess your sins, to repent, and ask God to fill you with His Holy Spirit, to give you the gift of faith, the gift of repentance. And then you too can look upon these events joyfully. Again, we don't rejoice in the suffering, but we rejoice that all the signs indicate the return of Christ is near. Let's move on to verse 8. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega, as you probably know, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, indicating that the Lord is the beginning and the end of all things. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning of what we now know is this universe, in the beginning of the creation of all things, God was already there. He is the eternal one. Now some Jewish teachers similarly came to call him the Aleph and the Tav, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. They further called God truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Hebrew is emet, and it, the letters that spell out the Hebrew word emet are aleph, mem, tav, which they said were the first, middle, and last letters of the alphabet, showing that God was eternal and ruled over all time. The alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. Revelation 1.4 we read last week from him who is and who was and who is to come. You see other great so-called so-called great religious leaders down through the centuries they had a beginning they were born into this world as human beings and then they died. But our God our Lord and Savior is, was, and is to come. He's not the great I was or the great I will be. He's the great I am. Always the same. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Revelation 22, 12, and 13. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Again, that indicates rapidity, speedily. When all these things begin to unfold like birth pangs, as we talked about last week, these things will not take decades, centuries, millennia, when it kicks in, it'll be very quick. 
I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. And I'm always reminded that even as we so often, unfortunately, look for rewards in this world, whether it be the praises and accolades of men, financial rewards, you know, fame and fortune and so forth, recognition. Jesus says, my reward is with me. So the greatest reward, the true reward that we will get from God it will be brought with Jesus when he comes. It's not something we will see in this life. The things of this life are temporary. No matter how many great rewards we accumulate, we can't take any of them with us. They're all temporary. We should be looking for the eternal rewards. Jesus said, don't lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, decay, but build up treasures in heaven. Those treasures are eternal. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. We're not saved by works, but we are rewarded based upon our works here on earth. When we do the right things for the right reasons, guided and directed by the Spirit of God, those things will be rewarded when we see Jesus face to face. And again, he says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So these things apply to both the Father and the Son. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. This tells us that Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all co-creators. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, Abraham had lived in the past at the time that Christ came into this world. Before Abraham was, before Abraham existed, I am. And that's exactly what God told Moses to tell the children of Israel when he sent Moses back from the land of Midian to set his people free. Moses says, well, who shall I tell them sent me? God says, tell them I am. The great I am. And then Jesus identifies himself as the I am. So, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Sounds to me like he's someone we should get in touch with. All others have come and gone. All others will come and go. This world as we know it will pass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. As I mentioned, Jesus is God. Therefore, any description of the Father is equally applicable to the Son. Then finally, this verse ends with these words, the Almighty. The Greek word for Almighty is pantokrator. It means the all-powerful one. He is the all-powerful one. Human beings get on power trips, don't they? And um, it's not a pretty thing. It's not a pretty sight to see. When somebody's on a power trip and they seek to amass more and more power and as that happens, darkness and evil overtake them and they're willing to do anything to achieve that power, to keep that power, to increase that power. We're seeing an awful lot of that going on right now in our world, in our own nation. People are willing to do anything, say anything, to gain power, to keep power, to increase power. And they don't really care who they hurt in the process. But our God, 
a loving, gracious, merciful Heavenly Father. In the book of 1 John, it tells us God is love. He doesn't just love, He is love. He's the epitome. He is the source of all true love. And He's all-powerful. You can't, it doesn't get any better than that. God has all of the power and none of the corruption. It would serve us well to love Him, to worship Him, to honor Him. He is the Almighty. Verse 9. This will be our last verse today, believe it or not. Moving fairly quickly through this study today again. It's kind of interesting how that happens without a live congregation here. i got a few live ones here. Those who are part of the crew, the worship team, the sound crew, the camera crew, and so forth. It takes a certain number of people to do this, as you can imagine. But um, I guess I'm a little more subdued without a, a crowd. The Word of God is just as powerful. So here we go. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and presence of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice John, notice the humility of this great man, one of the twelve apostles, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the only one who survived martyrdom, the only one who was boiled in oil and didn't boil, the overseer of all the churches in Asia Minor, Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, and he refers to himself not as an apostle. He doesn't take on the airs of a bigwig. Your brother and companion. What a great role model John is for those who would aspire to leadership in the church. Jesus set the example. Jesus was the mentor and the role model. When he got down on his hands and knees, took off his outer garment, washed his disciples' feet, and then died on the cross for all of humanity. Jesus Christ the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and yet the suffering servant. The one who came to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see here the humility of John. He doesn't deem himself higher or better than the believers he is writing to. Your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Notice these three things that he says he shares with his brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. The first one is tribulation. The Bible tells us, Jesus himself told us, in this world we will have tribulation, we will suffer. John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Kind of interesting. In the world you will have tribulation. Really? How does that give me peace? But listen to the rest. I talked about this several weeks ago. I think it was in my Easter message where I mentioned the fact that all of us tend to have a selective hearing. Jesus told his disciples he was going to be killed by evil men, and then they shut down. They couldn't hear the rest of what he was saying when he said, but on the third day, I will be raised from the dead. They missed it. We need to listen to the whole counsel of God, as Paul talks about in the book of Acts. Listen to the rest of what Jesus has to say. First of all, he says, in me you may have peace. Then he says, in the world you'll have tribulation. Uh-oh, I knew it. Too good to be true. It's going to be a bummer. No, wait, listen to the rest of it. But be of good cheer. Why? Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. So there's going to be some bumps in the road. 
There's going to be some trials, some tribulations, some difficulties. But be of good cheer. Don't let it get you down. As believers, we should never find ourselves under the circumstances. My wife caught me on this one the other day. I've been using this for years. In Christ, the Bible tells us we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So therefore, we should never, if we're constantly mindful of our position in Christ, we should never find ourselves under the circumstances. So the other day, I was talking about something, and I said, under the circumstances, and my wife says, what are you doing under there? Because that's what I always used to say. What are you doing under there? You should never be under there as a believer. And she got me on it. Well, you can always count on your loved ones to hold you accountable for everything you say and do. And that's a good thing. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I, Jesus, have overcome the world. So as long as we're holding on to Jesus, as long as we are in Christ, we're in relationship with Him, we're in fellowship with Him, we're in prayer, we're in the Word, and we're in fellowship with other believers when possible. And we can thankfully do that over the Internet. We can do it by our FaceTime and our cell phones and so forth and email. We can stay in touch with each other. But as long as we stay connected to Jesus, we're in good shape because He has overcome this world. In fact, again, in 1 John, we're told, greater is He who is in you and me than he who is in the world. Who's that? He who is in the world is Satan, the prince of this world, but He who lives in us, Jesus Christ, is greater by far. So in Christ, we will have tribulation. We will suffer. Jesus didn't promise us a rose garden, a tiptoe through the tulips. He gave us a realistic picture of what life here on earth would be like. Again, that's what I love about our God. He lays it all out there. There's no fluffing stuff, no deception, you know, no bait and switch with Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. We are given the truth, we're given the realities of life, but then we're also given the answers to a victorious life in Christ, in His Word. We will also be partakers of the kingdom of God, and Jesus will give us the strength to patiently endure. Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him, writes Paul. And again, we see three things, just like we saw here with this previous verse. John 16, 33. Peace, tribulation, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world three or four, depending on how you look at it. And then Philippians, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's the whole ball game. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what guarantees you and I eternal life in Christ. And the fellowship of his suffering. So again, that's part of the package. Some people only want the goodies, and some preachers only promise the goodies. They leave out the bad parts, or the difficult parts, I should say. And they tell you, if you just have enough faith, you'll never get sick, you'll never be poor. That's just not true. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Paul says, I want to know, I want the whole package. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So you see, there's fellowship in suffering because Jesus suffered in every way as you and I suffer. And he understands our sufferings better than anyone else. And so there's a depth of relationship that comes 
through suffering and being able to endure that suffering by not being under the circumstances but being seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Let me read it again, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And you see, the glory of Christ that we're seeing revealed here in Revelation, the glorified Christ in heaven and all of his glory and splendor, but the pathway to that glory was through the cross, through the suffering. And so it's true for you and I. The pathway for us to eternal glory in Christ is the pathway that leads through the sufferings of this life. Not avoiding them, going around them, running away from them, but going through them with Christ at our side. He has overcome the world. And then finally, Paul writes, being conformed to his death. His death was the death of self-denial. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, he said. Being conformed to his death means that we deny ourselves in this life in order to patiently endure, waiting for, expecting those eternal rewards with God in his eternal kingdom. James 1, 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's the, the verse that we all hate to hear when we're going through trials, right? Some brother or sister in Christ comes up and goes, Hey, hang in there, man. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials and you want to lay hands on them in the name of the Lord, right? But knowing, how can you count it all joy when you fall into various trials? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. How do we know that our faith is genuine? How do we know that our faith is real? That we didn't just have some kind of an emotional experience one day in church and go forward for the altar call and pray a sinner's prayer. Or maybe it happened on TV, who knows where. How do we know that we have a true, genuine faith in Christ? It needs to be tested. How is it tested? By various trials. The testing of your faith produces patience. You learn that even though life on this planet, even with God, is not a bed of roses, it's not always perfect. We live in a world cursed by sin. The whole human race and every, all of God's creation has been cursed by the fall of man. And so we have bugs, we have diseases, germs, viruses, pandemics, loss of income, loss of job, food shortages, on and on it goes. And even so, what we're experiencing now in our nation is nothing compared to what believers have experienced all over the world for the last 2,000 years. The suffering, the persecution for the cause of Christ. We definitely would fall under the category of what Paul calls momentary light afflictions. Now, I'm not saying it could get worse. The Bible says it will get worse, but at some point... We're going to be called home, and then God's going to pour out His wrath upon this unbelieving world. In the meantime, we're called to endure, to persevere. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance, one translation reads. We need endurance. The goal is to make it to the finish line. Paul says, I've finished the race. I've fought the good fight of the faith. 
It's not about just a one-time experience making a profession of faith. It's then turning, repenting, turning from your former life and following God and living for Him for the rest of your earthly days. That requires patience. That requires endurance. I'm sure all of us today can think of individuals who once professed a faith in Jesus Christ and evidenced, gave evidence of a walk with God, but are no longer following Him, no longer walking. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing because the Bible says, He who endures till the end. Till the end of what? Till the end of your earthly life. He who endures till the end will be saved. He says, yep, I was sent to the island of Patmos. Was on that island that is called Patmos. We mentioned already it's a small island in in the Aegean Sea, in the uh, Sporides, the southern Sporides Islands off the coast of Turkey. Why was he there? Wow, this tells it all. For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was exiled there because he refused to stop witnessing and preaching the gospel, teaching the word of God, proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And more and more people are in the habit of doing this today. Refraining, stepping back, shrinking back from proclaiming the true gospel of Christ, ashamed to speak his name, John certainly was not. Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, wrote that John was sent to Patmos by the emperor Domitian in A.D. 95 and released after one and a half years. In our own nation at the current time, pastors have been arrested recently for doing just this, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the name of Christ, holding church services contrary to the governmental crackdown, refusing out of personal conviction to shut down their churches during the pandemic. Now in Kentucky, they've won a case against the state and the federal authorities have proclaimed that it's unconstitutional for the governor of Kentucky to shut down the churches. Something happened in Oklahoma in one of the cities where an injunction was uh, brought against the mayor for the same thing, denying churches the right to meet. And so we're beginning to see this happening in various parts of the country. But we know that in the early days of this pandemic, Rodney Howard Brown down in Florida was arrested for having services. There have been other pastors who have been fined or arrested. And beyond that, men and women have been imprisoned all over the world throughout history of the church for preaching the gospel. And so that's why John was there. That's why he was exiled. Now, that begs the question, how much are you willing to endure for the cause of Christ? And some are saying that uh, all that's happening right now, that certain members of the political community Those in authority, those in government, those in leadership are taking advantage of this whole situation to bring further restrictions upon the churches. 
And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but at some point, we have to be like the apostles who stood before the Sanhedrin and say, sorry guys, we must obey God rather than men. Now there are 3,000 churches in Southern California that are vowing to open up at the end of May regardless of what Governor Gavin Newsom says or does. So we're seeing a growing movement in our own nation. Uh, it's been affirmed and confirmed by the Department of Justice that closing churches is an infringement on our constitutional rights, freedom of religion. Up to this point, the vast majority of churches in this country have been submitting to the authorities, and the Bible does talk about that. As I've said before, we are to submit to those in authority unless they ask us to do something that's illegal, immoral, or unbiblical. So we're, we're riding a fine line here, and so far most churches have been cooperative, but it would appear that uh, very soon that may come to an end. My question for each one watching today, how far are you willing to go to take your stand for the Word of God? Because... There are those who have labeled the Bible as hate speech and have tried to get the Bible outlawed or at least altered to the point to where it's no longer meaningful to water it down, to take out those parts of the Scriptures that are vitally important that lead to the salvation of men and women and boys and girls. How far are you willing to go for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? We may be tested in the near future on this. And as I mentioned already, believers all over the world for the last 2,000 years have suffered and died for this very reason, because they refused to bow down to ungodly authorities who tried to shut down the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. These are things to consider. These are things to pray about. We're going to pick it up next time with verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, says John. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? The voice of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this amazing, powerful, dynamic, final book of the Bible, Revelation. And so, even as we've seen today that you, Father, you, Jesus, you, Holy Spirit, are the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, we are now in the last book of the Bible, and we are going to be looking at the last days leading up to the millennial kingdom of Christ. Father, I pray for each one watching today that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon them, that you'd bless them, that you'd encourage them, that you'd keep them safe and healthy. And Father, if there's anyone watching that does not have a personal relationship with you, I pray that this very day, this very moment, they would Invite Christ into their hearts to be their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that not one person watching today would be lost, but they would be found and become a part of your forever family. Lord, cause your word to sink deep within our hearts and minds that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we might have the mind of Christ, and that you'd give us the strength, the patience to persevere, to endure through the trials and tribulations of this life, knowing that the reward will be eternity with you in paradise. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.